All right, everybody, welcome to uh, this episode of OK, Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong, and economic, or a podcast for understanding economics. My guest today is uh, Dave Vichik. Uh, it's Dave's a, a guy I went through uh, the master's program at DePaul with, and uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the economics of college education. Uh, Dave, uh, how about you give us a little bit of your background? Uh, yeah, I... Um... So as far as the uh, economic training, um, I was an English undergrad, so kind of a, a career switcher. <laughs> Went a little bit of a roundabout way. Mm -hmm. Although, I think there's lessons that you can pull from pretty much every discipline. Mm. Um, I got into economics, I think, um, initially because I was worried about uh, sort of issues of... Um, uh, negative externalities, which um, I'm sure you will talk about at some point yeah. on uh, your podcast, um, doesn't really necessarily pertain to what we're talking about today, although maybe it does. Um, and I found in economics uh, a really great structure for just how to uh, break down and understand how to parse, you know, the way that the world works. I guess that's what I'm always looking for is better understanding. Um, so yeah, uh, the master's program was very, uh, illuminating for me. And, uh, we, as you said, went through it together. We actually worked on papers together, including one that, uh, to toot our own horn, won a, uh, a pretty nice prize. Award winning paper. That's right. Um, and then, so now while going through the program, uh, you know, because we, you know, we got exposed to a, a lot of different aspects of economics, you know, as, as a philosophy, as a science, as an econometric, you know, statistical analysis process, I guess what aspect or subjects really kind of caught your interest? Um, so as I mentioned before, um, you know, especially, uh, the negative externalities, I guess we can just say, uh, is um, any situation in which a third party um, experiences harm as a result of a, uh, a contract, an economic contract between um, a buyer or a producer and a purchaser. And the most common one that you talk about is pollution. Um, you know, there is, uh, say, a factory that's producing widgets, and the contract that exists is between you know, the, the firm that produces the widgets and whoever's buying them, whether it's a, a, another firm that's using it as an intermediate uh, product or input to their ultimate product that they're going to sell on market, or whether it's, you know, the actual retailer that's going to sell the thing. Um, those are the two entities that um, are given all the rights in our economic system. But, you know, we live in a uh, we live in an interconnected world and uh, it's usually the case that um, or it has been the case, you know, in the industrial phase of development that those manufacturing processes produce some form of uh, pollution, whether it's uh, effluent into water systems or um, actual uh, what's more commonly thought of just like CO2 or, 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 you know, some kind of funky smog that gets into the air. Uh, it could even just be um, you know, economic harm in the sense of lowering uh, property values around the plant. Um, these are all things that impact uh, those people that live in the area around it, um, which they actually don't have any formal rights to uh, defend, at least not always. Um, so that is a negative externality. And um, 
the uh, the management of, of things like that gets into uh, the economics of uh, of the public sector and how does a government body um, work to correct those because really what you're talking about is a market imbalance mm. uh, wherein the full price of the production of that widget uh, isn't factored in um, you know so the person that's buying it downstream is buying it at a lower cost because they don't have to pay for the pollution no one's paying for that pollution well, and it's, it's never factored in exactly and, and so yeah. we, oh, sorry. oh I was just gonna say they're you know they're paying for the materials and the labor to produce the product but not the after effect of the product yeah yeah and so and what you end up getting uh, as in any case where um, a product is selling under uh, you know for some reason under the rate that it should be is you get uh, overproduction of a, a particular product and um, again as I said uh, we live in an interconnected world and anytime there's a disequilibrium uh, that develops in one area of the economy it tends to uh, spread out uh, mm. pretty rapidly and in ways that you would never expect um, to other areas of the economy um, so it's really important to to, uh, to consider those uh, externalities and they're not always negative there are also uh, things called positive externalities and if you ever get into a discussion of healthcare and especially of the anti-vaxxers i'm sure you'll talk which, about which oh you 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 can bet we're gonna have a conversation <laughs> about that so you'll be talking about you know the the public benefit that accrues uh from something like vaccination um which nevertheless um is not incentivized by the market because um you know it's it's just not pro a profitable business to be in to to develop vaccines for people or ensure you know to make sure that they're they're vaccinated um so yada yada, that's kind of what got me into it. Um, I am interested in uh, you know in a broad diversity, I think, of topics within uh, economics. Um, you know what we're talking about today is education, and I uh, was really interested in my uh, labor econ course, um, and I think we'll touch on um, some of the the that the ideas that I developed there. Um, especially with regard to um, selection of uh, you know, the proper selection of schooling, um, but also you know we studied together um, the the Fed in the United States and um, you know the operations of uh, central banks uh, broadly, how they work to uh, regulate or moderate financial markets, um, how uh, financial intermediaries uh, actually serve a, a an essential role in the market um, or in, an, in a macro economy. Um, I, I'd like to say that I was interested in international uh, macroeconomics and, and finance, and I am, but to be honest, that was one of the mo more difficult topics for my brain for whatever reason to parse. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's an ongoing process of uh, assimilating that information, I think. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, the nice thing is with economics as a subject is there's enough uh, niches within it to go down where you can be an incredibly successful economic incredibly successful economist while still not necessarily being an expert in say arbitrage yeah like if that's right. not your thing it doesn't really ever have to be it's the way uh, dr levitt out of university of chicago talks about you know he's become incredibly successful at, at applying 
economic theory to everyday situations, yeah, couldn't tell you how to pick a stock. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I. So it, you know, like I say, I think when when I I think the most common reaction I I get from people when I tell them you know I I have an educational background in economics I'm an economist uh, is oh so finance and I'm like no that's a completely <laughs> different subject yeah they well, have a completely different uh, section of the school it's not a completely different subject but it's a it's a more specialized application yeah. of of economic theory now I get I uh, you know oh I I had no idea you wanted to be an accountant. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I want to be an economist. So, I mean, right there, it goes to a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what economics is and does, which is why we're doing this podcast. Yeah, and I mean, smooth transition right there. Uh, I was just going to add. <laughs> I think uh, accountants um, in practice actually end up needing to know a lot more about um, the minutia of um, uh, tax law. Um, and how to uh, work the uh, all the various micro functions of an Excel spreadsheet mm-hmm. um, than they need necessarily know about fundamental economic theory uh, <laughs> or regression analysis. Thing. Yeah. I, well, and and I think the the, the real delineation is uh, accountants need to be right. Uh, mm. Economists need to be right on average. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of that that famous economist joke. Uh, which I guess I'm not going to actually remember right now. Um, I have to stick a pin in that. Um, the, the the deer hunters? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's some form of that, but that's one of them, yeah. yeah exactly. For, for three economists go hunting. Right. Uh, they see a deer. Yeah. First one misses five feet to the left. Second one misses five feet to the right. The third one says, I hit it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So... Yeah, as, as you mentioned today, our topic is going to be about college education. So... For the past uh, week in preparation for this, I've been doing uh, my research on what the, the uh, I guess to use a nice term, the zeitgeist out there uh, is discussing when it comes to the economics of college education. And again, this, this program wouldn't be called, uh, let me tell you why you're wrong, if I didn't find some pretty... Uh, objectionable material? I, obje- not objectionable. Like, like I say, with, with most things, it's not uh, the 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 media and the politicians and the pundits are not going out to intentionally deceive you. They're just oversimplifying the issue to a point at which what they're talking about has become sort of meaningless. Uh, they, yeah. they and 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 any solutions they propose are so. And, and this is a term I don't know if people are familiar with, but I use a lot uh, what I call hand wave solutions, where it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, and I'm waving my hand right now on a podcast, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. But no, uh, I can vouch for it. He's waving his hand. Yeah. Oh, it's, you know, we'll just do this and everything will be fine. And, and again, typically issues in economics are minutia driven. They're yeah. detail oriented and there's a lot of nuance twists and turns and ifs and therefores. And, and, and you, you do the, uh, the top or the, the issue in uh, disservice by ignoring those and your solutions that you propose are inevitably doomed to failure by ignoring those. So again, we're going to get into the the minutia of college education. Now, to to look at to hear about this this topic uh, through mass media, uh, 
the, the, the there seems to be two major camps. You've got, um, you know, again, overgeneralizing here, but you, you, you've got the, uh, the Bernie Sanders uh, brigade, uh, which again, not just him, but you know, the, the, the far left who says uh, college education is, uh, you know, should be treated as an entitlement. Uh, it should be absolutely free to U.S. citizens. And the reason being that, um, you know, there, there is a national interest in having a highly educated uh, population who not only do they have the, their, the education, but they don't have the debt load that comes with it. Again, not wrong, but I think a little lacking in nuance. You've got the other half, which doesn't even seem to have a political component to it, because this is coming from right-leaning uh, uh, financial pundits, left-leaning financial pundits. It's it, it seems to be just a less of a ideology and more of a retort, is that uh, the idea being that, yes, college is expensive. Uh, yes, there are, you know, sacrifices you have to, you, you are potentially making for it. Therefore, people should just, you know, 18-year-olds uh, should just not pursue, not or not every 18-year-old should pursue a college education because, you know, you're, you're missing out on time in the, you know, in the workplace that you could be, you know, uh, Build it, building or uh, advancing within your company or you know career field, right. you're incurring a lot of debt uh, for a degree which may eventually be useless to you wherever you wind up working. And so, wouldn't you be better? Wouldn't they be better off going to a trade school and just you know going into a job? Again, as is the case with with most of these, not wrong. They're but again, lacking in nuance. So I guess we'll start off hitting on the basic point that, that really both sides are getting at uh, from, yeah, from, from the left. Oh, before you even say that, just as an interjection, like uh, this is an aptly named podcast because there are about five times uh, when you were laying, rolling that out that I wanted to jump in and say, well, let me tell you where you're wrong. <laughs> let me tell you where you're wrong. And we're going we're, we're gonna to unpack both, both sides and, and kind of see... Where they've got it, where they don't, and um, so, but the the core premise for both, and and they're both proposing alternate solutions for it. The the one point where we do they they both sides seem to agree, is that there is, uh, and they don't use this term, but uh, there is an opportunity cost to attending college. So I guess, you know, Dave, does that is that a legitimate argument? Is there in fact an opportunity cost? To going to college, if you if you're a potential student and you have the choice to either graduate from high school and start working, or go to college and get a four year degree, uh, in that decision, is there an opportunity cost? Well, of course, there's an opportunity cost, um, but uh, I think the better answer, um, like just about everything in economics, uh, is you know it depends. Uh, and, and here I mean, what I mean by that is the, you know, degree, like the, the degree of that opportunity cost depends. Um, it depends on, you know, what kind of a, a job market um, you are 
situated in, um, which is sort of like, you can think of it as an initial endowment. Like, where are you um, socioeconomically? Where are you geographically? Um, and that can make a huge difference um, with regard to what kind of opportunities you have. Um, I haven't uh, done an extensive amount of research in uh, this particular trade-off, um, but you know I can imagine um, the uh, what the marginal analysis is going to look like is um, if there is a trade that you can go into um, that you can essentially. Um, get hooked up with a good uh, route of apprenticeship, um, a trade that, um, you know, will lead to the kind of lifestyle uh, that you envision for yourself, um, then that, uh, that may be a large enough opportunity cost, you know, those four years that you'd spend in college, whereas um, you could untrained move into some form of apprenticeship. Uh, whereby um, the option to go to college uh, would be sort of uh, not recommended, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that those opportunities are, are certainly becoming more and more rare to, to move into something that requires absolutely no um, experience. I mean, the only things that um, most people before they go into college, uh, the only thing, you know, uh, industries that they have access to, I mean, you can think of, uh, the service industry, that's certainly the biggest one. Um, and there are routes to uh, making a decent wage and even a, a, a decent salary there. I'm actually uh, kind of have randomly gotten slotted into one of those right now. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a side issue. Um, what else can we think of? I mean, I guess there are still a few um, vibrant um, you know, spots in the, in the manufacturing sector where you don't necessarily need um, any uh, formal ed- uh, education beyond high school uh, to, to get a start in at least, to get mm-hmm. a, a foot in too. And if, and even rare if you are um, connected to um, in, to people within an industry that, that still has exposure to uh, unions, then it can be uh, a more even natural route there. Well, and, and right there though, like, you know, what you're, what you're mentioning are, industries and and specific jobs that are i guess set up to cultivate uh fresh uh workers and turn them in you know basically if you're working in some sort of specialized manufacturing uh there 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 may not be a trade school specialized enough so that industry knows any new laborers they take in, any any new workers they have, they're going to have to train them on their equipment, on their processes. And so they have this, I guess, culture of, uh, you know, training and, and creating that, that ever, you know, uh, increasing level of advancement. But not every industry is like that. There are very few that are like that. And I, I mean, I was going to, I was going to sort of condition that with uh, the idea of trade schools too mm-hmm. um, that's that's sort of a, a third route um, that that has gotten some like talk in uh, in you know political debates in Washington and, and, and outside the beltway um, how do we you know how do we factor the idea of trade schools um, into this larger conversation of secondary uh, or I guess post-secondary education right because yeah. I forget how they well in I know in Europe, uh, high school is considered secondary education. Yeah. So you have post-secondary. I, 
I really don't know. It doesn't matter. Post high school. Post high school. Um, and uh, but you know that's that's that, that's just another um, I guess uh, gradient within within this decision matrix uh, if you want to think of it like that. Uh, I hope I'm not speaking to like uh, economic. Uh, speak right now. No, I mean, if people don't know what that term means, they can look it up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, I, I hesitate also to use um, too much of the lingo because, uh, honestly, like, I think sometimes economists uh, use lingo as a way, as its own form of, like, hand waviness. <laughs> just just to get people confused to the point where they don't, they don't enough, ask any more questions. Exactly, enough uncertainty. I mean, this, you know, so, like, you say that you use the term hand wavy, but also, like, every seminar we attended, like, somebody said, like, well, doesn't this explanation seem a little hand wavy to you? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's a kind of a, a common term for uh, a place in a paper where um, maybe the, 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 either the econo- econometric, that is the statistical sort of calculation um, of the, you know, the data that they were, um, or the model that they were trying to construct wasn't fully thought out, or just the underlying rationale wasn't, wasn't thought out or explained properly. Um, well, and I think some of that too, and we'll just go on a quick tangent about economic academia is I think people write these papers on these subjects and everybody wants to be the guy who comes up with the universal theory of economics the you know you know uh, at a level of you know Milton Friedman or Keynes or Adam Smith where you've just you've answered every question uh you know again you know we're talking about Smith uh you know economists have spent over 200 years just constantly proving Adam Smith right. Uh, and he was doing it without regression analysis, which is pretty impressive when you think about it. And everybody wants their their paper to be that, where, oh, I've created this equation which explains behavior in the jelly-based candy market, and somehow this is going to answer all of our questions about the bond market. I You know, what, whatever it might be. And instead of simply saying... Yeah, I've, I've, you know, I've got this equation that explains behavior in this very specific case with these very specific variables, and it may not be, you know, an earth-shattering uh, thing, but if you take this explanation for behavior and combine it with the explanations from 20 other papers, you start to really get a picture of what people in a marketplace respond to, mm-hmm. and, you know... Yeah, not one of our equations explains everything, but these, well, it helps the subject to explain everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, in some ways, there's a, 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 a sort of a meta-organizational or a, a meta-like uh, data accumulation process going on, whereby you can say that um, you know if you have these uh, disparate models um, that help to explain different like nooks and crannies in a market uh, or in the broader market. Um, then those themselves become data points in, in, you know, broader, um, I guess, sort of meta-level regression that people are doing. If if somebody else is looking at, say, the stock market and they read this paper on jelly-based candies and there's a variable or an aspect of the equation that they're like, hey, behavior in that market is kind of similar to behavior in the stock market, they can then kind of just cut and paste that 
you know, obviously credit it to the original author. Sure. But yeah, but well, if they're publishing it, if yeah. they're just using it for their own uh, internal uh, algorithm to try and make some money for their clients, who gives a shit? Yeah, it's like it's like baking, like yeah. it is not patented. But uh, so I mean, like you say, there's no matter how uh, specific or uh, yeah, I guess unbroad. An, an economics paper is it doesn't it, it doesn't make it not valuable mm-hmm. for a, a double negative there but uh, I think everybody wants to especially when they're presenting to a room full of economists wants to make it as if they've just cracked you know the the uh, universal theory of economics which is going to answer all of our questions um, and uh, like you say, I, I you know I think that has more to do with the the speaker and the setting rather than you know the actual intent of their paper or yeah. their idea. Well, and so um, as long as we went on this tangent, yeah. I'll, I'll keep this relatively brief. Um, I think um, that that's more of like the the idealistic version. Uh, what I and I'm, I'm sure that's that's functioning at some level as well. Um, but what I see uh, in a lot of these sort of uh, paper presentations. Um, is economists um, subject to the, the very laws that they're studying to economics um, in that, you know, the, the, the realm of academia is not exempted from the broader market and mm. from the, the forces of the broader market. And, you know, there is this uh, term in academia, uh, which, you know, helps to explain what professional academics uh, jobs really are, publish or perish, um, yeah. you know, y- very, there are very few institutions where um, the professor is just allowed to teach, and that's that's sufficient. Um, most places um, for prestige, you know, uh, for um, for the draw to potential like students or grants uh, or intellectual property uh, as forms of revenue that it may bring, um, want uh, academics that are going to be active in publishing and, um, you know, create a name for themselves in the field because, you know, this, this draws those resources towards the institution, uh, that supports them. And, uh, so I think that like a lot of these, these papers are just, um, sometimes people that are very interested in these subjects, um, but they're also kind of backed into a wall Mm. and they have to like, you know, okay, well, I, I think I know this, let's just run with this. Um, got to publish a paper because I haven't published a paper right. in a while. And actually, sometimes the you know sometimes the most honest thing that uh, an economist can do, um, and any academic can do, especially in the social sciences, is to say, "Hey, I looked at all this data, and uh, I tried applying this theory, and actually, it doesn't work. Like, I my my paper was inconclusive. Yeah. And sadly, you don't see a lot of those uh, papers, uh, even though those might actually be more helpful to the broader discipline oh yeah well no because if if you're aware of if you're digging in the set down the same rabbit hole and you're aware that this guy tried you know some other economist tried x theory right and it didn't work well you can tick that one off your list and go okay i I shouldn't go that way with it i need to come up with a better way or at the very least like there's reason to believe that this this might not bear out for me so anyway bring it back around to, to college education uh, I've got a quote here from a uh, Richard Vetter, uh, who uh, published a, an editorial about the, you know, the. the Why does that sound familiar? Uh, he's a U.S. News uh, oh, okay. uh, 
writer. Uh, he says here in talking about, again, the, the choice to go to college being, you know, being potentially detrimental to the, the potential student. Uh, he says uh, others would do well to enroll in shorter non-degree training programs to learn to be, for example, a long distance truck driver, beautician or medical records clerk. Now, again, that that statement is true uh, because if you wanted to be a beautician um, and you went to Harvard for four years to study art history and then got out, couldn't get a job as a beautician because you don't have your certification to be a beautician. So now you also have to spend the you've got the debt load from your Harvard education and you still have to get the certification to be a beautician. And then you're working as a beautician making uh, money that will never allow you to pay off the loans you took out to go to Harvard, you know, wouldn't that person be better off just simply going and getting their cert certification to be a beautician? I think that's right. Here's the problem with it. That 18-year-old who is making the choice between going to, and, and again, I'm using Harvard just because it's expensive and it gets us to the idea of heavy debt load. Sure. Could be anything, though. Mm -hmm. um, going to Harvard or going to beauty school, uh, I think Richard Vetter here is assuming that that 18-year-old has perfect information about what they want to do in life. Right. And if you've ever been an 18-year-old, or spent more than five minutes talking to an 18-year-old, <laughs> I think we all know that that's not really true. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's uh, I, 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 in reading the, the kind of two sides of this, uh, you really get to, that's the thing that kept kind of record scratching for me, yeah. is, is the, the, the hand wave of, well, no, these kids just shouldn't go to, undergrad they should just go to uh you know a technical school or uh you know a you know get their certification in something but again it assumes that the 18 year old has perfect information they know they want to be x and uh i think you're you, you know one of the reasons you're a prime guest for this topic is you got your undergrad in english and then discovered economics uh, at a certain point and shifted over to that. Mm. So that, that's a perfect example of not having perfect information about what you wanted to do. Uh, and I mean, there, there, what, there's the uh, quote from uh, the uh, uh, wear sunscreen speech that, you know, some of the most people, interesting people I know didn't know what they wanted to be when they were you know, 20, some of the m most interesting people I know still don't know what they want to be. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's really the case for a lot of people. And so, again, with this hand wave guidance of just go to a cheaper technical school, okay, you know, 18-year-old Dave Vichek, do you know exactly what you want to be when you grow up? No. No. Oh, oh God, no. <laughs> um, listen, I, I guess... Yeah, what you said is true. I'm probably a good um, case study to look at um, in that I think I would be more of a, uh, a tail or uh, a shoulder uh, even, um, you know, uh, 
I don't want to say anomaly because there are plenty of people like me, but uh, I'm, I'm certainly not in the middle of the bell curve in terms of like maturity at that age. Mm. Um, and still, I think that like um, my uh, the way I was then is probably representative of the way that all uh, young um, adults. I don't I hesitate to even call an 18 year old adult. Um, <laughs> only on the most technical of levels. Uh, only on, on by our own legal standards. Um but uh, I look back at that time and I, I, I think of like an insane person. And I really do mean that um, in, in almost a technical sense. Um, you know, there is uh, one of the things I studied. So, you know, I was an English undergrad, but I almost minored in cognitive science also. Mm. Um, and one of the things uh, you look at, um, and most people know this anyway, um, is that, you know, the regions of your brain don't uh, really finish um growing or forming uh i think of it as baking um like that 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 dough hasn't quite set until you uh turn like 25 yeah um that's when you know the uh the rational logic centers or your prefrontal cortex actually start to assert themselves um more heavily in the uh, decision making process than your impulse centers um it's when you i guess have attain sufficient information about the world too that um a uh, a, a more concrete model of it um sort of uh settles in and you can make you can start making longer term planning um although you know to go back to that quote i, I don't know where that comes from um but that's interesting um uh do, did you have a source for that the, which, uh, the, which uh some of the most interesting people that i know yeah it, it, it's the you know i cannot remember who gave the original it was a commencement speech but then it got turned in baz lerman turned it into uh a single where he rereads this speech over a song oh wow i'll I'll play it for you that's so weird Uh, but yeah it's called uh what be free to wear sunscreen or something free to wear sunscreen yeah so um i'm definitely i'm one of those people that still doesn't know what they want to do um I, you know, and this is relevant. This, let's, let's loop it back around. Um, what the, one of the points that I wanted to bring up uh, from uh, this sort of hand wavy um, <laughs> posture from politicians um, that you brought up is that um, sometimes the educational process is useful um, just for the, um, just for one, the accrual of general knowledge mm-hmm. about the world. Um, this is the the strength of the liberal arts degree, I think, um, is that it gives you broad exposure. Um, so in, in some senses, it's it's a you can think of it in, in financial terms as a hedge. Yep. Um, you're going to learn enough about uh, enough disciplines that um, your thinking becomes more more broad, more synthetic, and uh, eventually you can actually better target um, yourself uh, or really just sort of like interpolate um, information from one area to another um, more easily. Um, But added to that, um, sometimes um, the educational process, you know, if you go to a good school and you have, uh, which Harvard certainly would be, uh, would would have to fall into that category. Uh, If you have good uh, professors um, that are, um, that actually evoke a response within you, um, then it's uh, it's ultimately a um, a process of self discovery mm. can be, um, and that 
is um, this. This is something else that I'm really interested in economics. Is all of these um, non-quantifiable um, goods mm. uh, or goods that would be very difficult to quantify uh, that nonetheless exist out there, um, and yet just because it is such a difficult operation to put some to put some kind of logical um, structure or um, what's the word I'm looking for scaffolding around them uh, to try and put them into an economic uh, model. Um, it just doesn't get done. Yeah. Um, and, and that's definitely one of these cases. So, um, you know. Well, and, and let me say, if you, uh, you know, and, and I'm going to get a little uh, high-minded here, because uh, if you go back to uh, Thomas Jefferson's writings on the idea of founding the uh, University of Virginia, his whole the benefit he felt to having a a uh, statewide university was less to bring you know bring in people and and you know hammer the classics and teach them all latin and and things like that more as a hub where urban virginians people who grew up in the urban areas of virginia and rural virginians could come together interact with each other for three or four years and leave having been exposed to a version of living that was not their own and it's that kind of you know again it sounds like new age hippie nonsense but thomas jefferson said it so i'm (laughs) I'm gonna i'm gonna assume he knew what he was talking about uh oh it's not i mean it's not new age at all and i i your, your example is, is kind of funny um, just because I know that like the people that were going to college in his day were all patricians mm. so he's talking about when he talks about people coming together he's talking about the people that matter in his society well, um, the, but, the urban rich and the, the rural, rural rich. rich but these are the people <laughs> who, are, who are fully enfranchised in that early version of our republic anyway so that's you know that's who was important I guess mm. to, um yeah, so that that can be that can be part of it. You can see uh, this public benefit of education arising, whereby it actually works to um, uh, protect or enhance um, our very system of government. Oh, yeah. um, because you know the uh, the democratic form of government cannot really work effectively without an informed and educated public, mm-hmm. uh, broad enough you know uh, education and information operating in the public. Um, so that's definitely a case of a uh, uh, a public uh, a positive externality um, that accrues when you have a um, a strong educational system. However, in order for that to work, that uh, and and then this, this would be a point in fa- you know that would go to the the, the Bernie uh, side of the argument. In order for that to work, you have to have broad access to that yeah. uh, education. And it doesn't have to be Harvard, you know, uh, there are fine state schools all over the country um, that have, um, you know, great programs, great professors, and because uh, they are, um, you know, uh, state-run institutions, um, at least for residents of that state, you can go there at a, a greatly reduced fee to um, an Ivy League college, you know, where you have to, a, a private nonprofit. Yeah. Uh, institution um, but uh, but even then you know sometimes uh, especially with the acceleration of, of tuition costs uh, over the last 10 20 years um, it can be uh, you know it can set too high a bar in, in, in the investment mm-hmm. 
Well, and and so I mean that kind of leads us into uh, you know one of the other. I, I still think it's way too hand wavy, but we'll get into that. Uh, thoughts slash, uh, it's it's like twenty percent of a solution uh, that gets thrown out there. I've got a, a quote from uh, Lindsay Burke. Uh, she also writes for U.S. News, um, uh, where she says that the 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 problem isn't people going to college. People going to college is good. Uh, her quote here is that uh, there's little pressure to choose a course of study that will reap returns on their investment. So, again, our potential student that we were talking about before, who is going to eventually wind up as a beautician, uh, that potential student go, you know, gets accepted to Harvard, they've got the grades for it, uh, decides the thing they're most interested in is... Uh, learning Sanskrit or again art history or you know I, I took a semester of Sanskrit at school <laughs> it's uh it's the, you, you need more than a semester well, I, I kind of I, I jumped out early <laughs> but yeah I, again whatever the the equivalent of underwater basket weaving is these yeah. days a, a, a philosophy uh, right? well actually the, the the equivalent would be um no, no. The absolute like extreme case is, uh, I've always remembered this one example, but um, I think it's uh, medieval literature, ah. uh, or yeah, so medieval philosophy, medieval literature, something like that. It's so niche and so specialized that there's really nothing you can do with it outside of academia. Well, outside of replace the professor you yeah, had exactly. taught it. Exactly. So, yeah. Well, then let's go with medieval literature. So this potential student. Uh, gets into Harvard, studies medieval literature, uh, you know, and the, the, the problem I think Lindsay Burke's pointing to, and, and again, it, you know, we'll, we'll kind of parse it, but she's not entirely wrong, is that, uh, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, uh, FAFSA, wherever the student's getting their money from to pay for the Harvard education, uh, does not distinguish between this potential student who is on a tracks to study medieval literature and a potential uh, potential student number two who's going to the same school to get a degree in mechanical engineering, which is right. going to be much more marketable when they get out. And so because the, the lending agencies don't discriminate and the schools are certainly happy to keep their medieval literature program up and running, no one ever puts pressure on the, the potential students or the, the current students to go, okay, what are you really going to do with this? Like, is this going to be valuable to you? Are you going to be able, really the question being, are you going to be able to get a job with this degree that will allow you to pay off the student loans you took out to get this degree? So, I mean, again, Bur uh, Burke's not, I mean, that's a fair point. I guess the the question I'd ask uh, I'd ask you and you know the audience in general is if if we take her premise on that then what she's really suggesting as a solution is that lending agencies start engaging in a form of social engineering where they will approve loans for mechanical engineers but they won't approve loans for medieval literature um, are we comfortable with lending agencies doing that? 
How how good do you think they'd be at picking winners in that market? Yeah. Um, well, uh, it's a tough question, and uh, to a certain extent, I think financial uh, intermediaries, financial institutions, already do this anyway. I mean, because if you talk about any form of insurance, mm. um, that's all actual. I was just talking about this uh, with my dad the other day, but. Um, you know, there's no, they're, they're not thinking about flesh and blood humans. They're thinking about um, a, an, a, a pro, an actuarial profile, you know, that gives them uh, a sort of a, um, a risk, um, whatever factor, risk number at the end of their calculations. And, um, you know, depending on your record and all the things uh, and, and all the constituent parts um, in their uh, data matrix, um, you know, all the different variables that they are weighing against each other, um, you will have a variable uh, insurance rate, uh, higher or lower. And in some cases, that may price you out of the market for insurance. Um, and this is this gets back to like the Tea Party's concern about, um, you know, death panels. Well, mm. death panels may actually already be happening, although I wouldn't call them that. It's just, you know, the way that that our particular form of uh, health insurance and other forms of insurance uh, ensure their own profitability. Um, now, is this a bad thing? Um, yes and no. I mean, uh, social engineering of the type that you're talking about um, may, uh, you know, end up keeping a lot of people who whose true calling or what would be most uh, uh, you know, expansive for their their soul or whatever you want to, you know, mm. yeah, their, their personal growth, I well, guess you could say. You, you could even say their true talent. Their true talent. Uh, it may end up pricing them out of that, uh, out, of, uh, out of that education, out of that market. Um, but you have to weigh that against the potential risk uh, that you're introducing into the broader financial system. Mm. Um, and, you know, that certainly is a, a good enough uh, lead into a, a discussion of uh, the outstanding uh, bulk of student debt, yep. um, which has um, just all kinds of toxic effects on uh, the the macro uh, economy, mm -hmm. um, the the market in general. Um, you know, drag factors uh, as a result of um, you know uh, debt burden, repayment burden um, from the people that are coming out of this. People that, as you said, are young, immature, don't really know who they want to be, um, have t uh, like horribly imperfect information. I mean, ultimately, and we talked about this uh, in, you know, uh, with with our professor, Tim Opiella, mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorites. Um, but uh, he was the he was the first person to get it through my skull that um, what a bank does is not um, they don't create money. Their job isn't to hold money. Um, they're an intermediary for money. But the essential product that a bank creates is information. Yeah. Um, their job is to generate the the intel that says this is a good investment, this is a bad investment, and that's what helps to guide a market, um, or that's what helps to keep a market efficient and um, under you know ideal circumstances to uh, to keep it robust. Um, and if we're saying that banks aren't doing that in the case of of students. Um, I would say that yes, you can look at you can contextualize it as social engineering, but you can also contextualize it as um, you know uh, a 
abnegation of their fiduciary responsibilities. Well, and and I, I think the thing in in these you know in the, the the concept we're kind of in of that that social engineering and and the thing that nobody advocating for it or kind of hand waving in that direction is is ever saying and and I don't think that you know it's they're they're covering it up because secretly this is what they want I think they're just not thinking this through to the end is if we say again there are just certain subjects that really are only the purview of the idle rich. Like again, medieval literature, the the you may you may have a passion for it, you may have some idea or aspect in your life and skill set that is going to make you you're gonna blow the lid off of medieval literature. You're gonna rethink it in a way we've never thought of it before. But sorry, your parents weren't, you know, billionaires, so you can't go to college on mom and dad's dime you have to study electrical engineering because that's the only way your degree is going to be worth it for you the the again there's a, there's a record scratch moment i have when reading stuff like that which is basically that claims like that and again i do think unintentionally uh smack of an elitism that um you know, again, the the only people that should go to a real college, you know, a four, get a four year degree, are those who can already afford it, which to me is counter to the very concept of the American dream, mm-hmm. is that you are judged not on you know your your uh, family's financial position, but what you can bring to the table, and so you know you may have grown up incredibly poor, but you've got something. And, a, and you've got a passion and a, a talent for name the name the obscure subject, and we're gonna you, you go to school for it, you work towards it, uh, you you put in the time, you put in the effort, and you will be a success in this country. And so this idea that hey, if you can't already afford college, why not just be a beautician? Really seems like there's a way to look at it where it's this very uh, arch villainous. Yeah. idea of creating a, a subclass that hey sorry you're just not rich enough to study philosophy or you're not rich enough to study economics like that's really for only for people who can afford to why don't you just go back to the mines and and again I'm, I'm well economics is a bad example because um, my experience notwithstanding uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think um, that you know that, that discipline at least still today presents every avenue for uh, career advancement um, because um, and I think we really should do a whole separate uh, whole separate uh, conversation on um, you know technological uh, skill bias technical uh, technological change automation mm-hmm. oh, absolutely. Um, but uh, and, and just you know we can talk about well I can I can I can um, put this in put this like little uh, a segment in briefly um, what is the standard um, you know economic like evolution of an economy in the capitalist system um, and what we see from undeveloped to you know developed world is this very uh, familiar pattern whereby you start out with a 
predominantly agricultural uh, society, maybe one that is largely autarkic, which, you know, meaning it produces most of its own goods, um, then moving to uh, an industrial phase where, you know, it produces, um, uh, you know, the hard goods, um, the, the, the manufactured goods that uh, everybody, uh, you know, the widgets and the, the toys and trinkets that people like to buy, um, people need for production. Um, and then eventually um, you move on to the, uh, the service economy uh, in the post-industrial phase. And that occurs um, primarily um, because as we're seeing right now with all the debates that are going on, um, you know, in the Trump presidency um, about bringing manufacturing back and about um, erecting trade tariffs and uh, whether or not we're gonna get into a trade war with China, um, we live in a globalized economy um, and that really you know, all happened in the 20th century um, and that's why originally manufacturing jobs started leaving here because other countries where uh, labor was uh, dramatically less expensive uh, managed to get enough um, technical sophistication, enough capital really, yeah. um, just to build the infrastructure to be industrial. Um, and then because you know they could rely upon uh, a work, uh, you know labor force that um, is cheaper um, naturally um, with the, with you know trade barriers essentially reduced to a minimum, um, you can have this um, flow of of, uh, of cheaper goods coming in, competing with the domestic manufacturers. And then what's left is is services, um, but the service industry is is not just uh, or services are not just the service industry that we think of. You know, working flipping burgers at McDonald's. Um, it's also corporate services. Um, so account accountants, um, you know, financial HR, analysts, yeah. HR, everything uh, along that spectrum. That's what we do now in America pre- predominantly. Um, that's where our specialization is, I guess, uh, you could say in the, on the global stage. Um, and now I've kind of lost my train, like how I ended up talking about this. Well, well no, but I, I, I think it's, it's that idea that, you know, we're a lot, a, a lot of the, uh, people pushing their opinions out there about this are falling into that fallacy where they're talking about a world that hasn't really existed in about 30 years. Right. Like that we yeah. passed it by. Yeah. But because that's kind of what we know and the, the shape of the new economy and we'll be we'll be having a, a, a bigger group discussion episode on the new economy at some point if you want to come on to that. Um, doesn't it, it, it we don't quite know how to define it yet. So we just keep falling back on these old rules of like, in, unless you know, uh, or you know, unless you can get a job, you know, turning you know, turning wrenches with this degree, it's really not worth it. And that might not be the case because right. the the jobs of the new American economy might be very different than what we what we're used to. Okay, so I guess you know one thing is we're we're. Uh, you know, looking at this subject uh, and and the the opinions out there on it, uh, I guess I want to uh, ask is uh, you know the, the the people out there and 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 you and I are are we looking at the whole picture here? Because there seems to be this general consensus that you know uh, people would uh, potent, you know eighteen year olds potential students would be better off uh, 
whether, you know, if they had perfect information in just avoiding college uh, and going into the workplace so they don't suffer that opportunity cost of missing out on four years. What doesn't get mentioned uh, in this is that, you know, while a degree, you know, yes, you get a degree, but it also equals lost work time uh, plus debt. Uh, it's like a double debt, essentially. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you, the, the opportunity cost of not going straight into a job, plus the fact that you're starting out in the red mm-hmm. uh, when you do start working. What doesn't get brought up there is that, and and this kind of goes back to again a degree of of, of elitism that I, again I, I do think is unintentional, and and the potential for creating subclasses. Uh, that I also think is unintentional when people give their kind of hand wave opinions on this is that uh, no one ever mentions that if you enter the workforce without a degree, there is a very distinct ceiling on your advancement. Like uh, there, there are uh, there, there is a point at which you they will not promote you without a degree. So. Skipping college, yes, yeah, you're you're making money. You don't have that debt load, but you're gonna you are gonna be working, uh, assuming you never go and get your degree. You're gonna be working your entire career, um, at at a much lower rate with a distinct ceiling on what you can do. So I guess to so, re to reframe it away from the you know uh, kind of more vitriolic debate. Would would the answer for that be a social shift, which again is kind of talking about social shifts is kind of like talking about the tide should come in at a different time during the day because <laughs> social shifts are with there. But right. would it would a better solution than hey don't go to college go to a trade school be to create a a social shift in the U.S. culture where we college becomes an option for you to pursue later in life not at 18 years old but maybe at 25 get out of high school go to work figure out who you are and what you want to be and then you go to college so that there's not that potential for um you know again majoring in something that you then lose interest in by the end of your junior year but now you're stuck with that degree right well, and I think that uh, you're already seeing that happen in a small way with uh, with a number of um, young people who decide to take a gap year, mm-hmm. uh, for example, uh, a year or two between high school and college. Um, and unfortunately, this, I, from my anecdotal uh, viewpoint, also has a certain amount of class connotation because... Um, Generally, when you think about people taking a gap here, you think about people um, that are coming from a little bit more money, mm. um, upper middle class or just outright upper class, because it, it's, it sounds luxurious to just not work or whatever, you know, for uh, for that time period. Backpack through Europe. Exactly. But that's but that's not really all a gap year um, has to be or could be. And I think um, more and more there are people out there that are just going to work for a couple of years um, with this rationale in, in mind that um, they need you know their own time to be in the world and figure out um, what is important to them. And actually, I think that um, even from my own personal experience, um, it's uh, it's fair to say that 
some of that thinking about what you want to do and how you might best contribute uh, to an economy, to society, or just to, you know, to your own future, um, doesn't really happen until you have the immediate experience of uh, being a, a self-responsible adult, you yeah. know, having to, to produce for yourself um, or having some tangible work experience um, because then you uh, you actually find out uh, what being in the labor market is like, um, you know, what kind of work um, it, you're best suited for. Um, and it can be a, uh, it can be a radically different, um, you know, proposition than what you initially thought about yourself because um, what you intellectually are stimulated by doesn't always uh, telegraph perfectly um, to you know the kind of work that you're comfortable doing. Mm. So, for example, um, your uh, person who wants to study uh, medieval literature um, that may be their uh, you know intellectual stimulation uh, and and something that they just have a natural aptitude for. Um, but maybe there is a trade um, that has, you know, a particular balance of you know, you start talking about a work life balance yeah. um, that, uh, you know, they're they're good enough at it. Um, they can excel at it. Uh, it provides them enough money and none of the you know, th- they actually take pleasure in in the constant like an action of doing that. Um, and then I also think about. You know, I'm reading this great book right now uh, called um, Dow uh, Dow in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and he has a, a lot of wisdom packed into there. It's definitely, I mean, there there is sort of elliptically uh, description of motorcycle maintenance in this narrative. Um, but uh, mostly what it is is a, sort of a, a, a travel narrative and also a treatise on, on philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um he calls it a, a Chautauqua, which um, is a reference to an archaic sort of traveling, um, almost like a talk show or, or, or like a, a sort of like a, a traveling fireside chat, I guess, that um, took place in, you know, uh, 19th century America or something. Hmm. Um, but it's it's about like the, uh, the dispersal of wisdom. And one thing that he says is, um, you know, it may be may very well be the, uh, the case that um, what is best for a person is to um, you know coming out of uh, high school immediately and going into um, because his character in this book is a is an academic and he's plagued by these students that are not motivated that should never have um, been in the university to begin with and nevertheless the all the constraints upon him as an educator are to find a way to, to pass them, um, you know, and, and you can talk about grade inflation and, and all of this, you know, how it re- how perform, you know, student performance reflects on an academic institution um, and how that is uh, creating the wrong incentives for actual education to take place. Um, but, uh, you know, he thinks that his character thinks that we should be moving to uh, a, a mode of education in classes where we actually flunk people mm. if they're if they're not you know doing sufficient work um, and then what ends up happening is the really good students end up thriving the bad students end up uh, flunking and then realizing that they're not really interested in what they're studying to begin with and then dropping out and then he sort of charts this um, 
you know, uh, philosophical, or I'm sorry, um, hypothetical situation where this kid has dropped out because he was flunking, wasn't motivated by what he was studying. He goes to work um, as a mechanic or something. Uh, in fact, you know, because it's the art of motorcycle maintenance, he uses the example of a mechanic and he says it may be the case that after four or five years of doing that um, he becomes bored um, with his trade and um, nevertheless while he's been out in the world sort of gestating you know um, about what he's interested in um, he f he finds some kind of toehold um, that brings him back into academia um, but now he comes into academia with a, a project in mind yeah. and all of his uh, or her um, interest is uh, is generated um, from you know uh, out of need. You mm -hmm. know they move into they start looking at metallurgy and and uh, and you know uh, mechanical engineering and uh, electro uh, mag magnetic whatever you know electromagnetism because they they view them as like essential components to uh, um, knowledge components to what they want to build eventually. Um, so that sort of object-oriented or you know project-oriented uh, quest for knowledge um, is what really motivates uh, people the best. Oh, yeah. And and again, if if you're 18 and don't have that object or project in mind, you're just yeah. kind of looking to see what life has available for you. You know that, and I, I do want to point out this. This is going to be a weird. Uh, or a, an off episode because we've had it, it was uh, we made it to the hour and two minute mark in a conversation between two economists <laughs> where, before somebody used the word incentive and, uh. and really that's like I say normally that's going to be like word number three out of anybody's yep. mouth yeah and actually speaking of incentive I wanted to flip this because all all of the opinion and editorials I've found on this focus blame for this problem on the student saying yeah this the students are going right. to college when they shouldn't no one's really talking about uh, i guess you know an alternate way of looking at the problem which is um it, no one seems to consider that the problem might be that the education provided by it's, you know, universities and educational institutions is not geared towards creating a member of the workforce. It's geared towards creating an academic. But that doesn't necessarily give you all the tools you need to start pushing out a resume. Now, I know you and I are very fortunate in that, at least in my opinion, the DePaul economics program is very much geared towards finding you, towards yeah. training you not only giving you all the philosophical background in economics and the, the, the theoretical knowledge you need, but giving you a practical skill set that employers looking to hire economists want. Basically, the reason we had to spend so much time doing econometrics, running regression analysis through Stata, being encouraged to learn SAS and all these other systems is because for that just out of college level economist, if you're not going to remain in academia, if you want to go work in the corporate world, mm -hmm. that's what they're looking for. They don't care if you can recite the wealth of nations from memory. They care that they're going to ask you to analyze some statistical data as an economist would and that you can do that. Mm -hmm. Not all, not every college is like that. So 
I guess, you know, you run into that problem of what is the incentive for a college to provide a, and, and I'll put it in finger quotes because I don't want to dismiss academia, but a useful education. And Right. So um, I'm going to use this as a, an opportunity to um, do, uh, to jump in a little bit to uh, the topic of my fa- final paper for um, my labor econ course, mm-hmm. um, which was on uh, overeducation, um, which is not just, you know, a flashy title that I uh, thought up. Um, it's an actual subfield um, or, you know, subspecialty within the field of uh, labor economics. Um, and essentially, try and do this as quickly uh, as I can. Um, but essentially, what we traditionally thought of um, as the value of education um, was an additional increment to your wage over a lifetime. You know, economists are great at um, doing this kind of statistical regression work, which, um, you know, essentially just creates a formula um, that they then, um, you know, find uh, you know, formula has all these variables in it, uh, and then they find um, coefficients um, for that for each of these variables given a formula that match the data points in the in the data set that they're studying. Um, that's the, the simplest way I can describe it. Um, and you know, what economists used to think the philosophy uh, was is that um, you know you have a certain uh, as uh, an individual selling yourself, uh, selling your labor in, a, in the labor market, um, your experience and your uh, education um, are main components of, of your human capital. Um, and that is, uh, th- that will determine uh, the rate at which uh, you will be able to sell your labor. Um, so they were viewing education as a stock of uh, human capital that you accrue over time and that is more or less transferable within the labor market Um, and so you get these numbers like well for each additional year of college you will make uh, you know 10 11 percent more per year per annum over the course of of your lifetime Um, and that's just a number that's spit out by a statistical regression. Well, it's, um, it, it's an average. It's, yeah, it's, it's an average. Not an absolute. Exactly. Well, and it's highly dependent on the formula that you use, yeah. too. Um, so you have to realize that, that, that they're, not, they're not solving the problem by giving you this number. They are um, fitting a number to a specific philosophy um, or a way of thinking about um, this issue. But what we have seen since the 1970s is a rethinking of this um, and uh, one of the more um, dominant theories is that well education in and of itself is not and here's where the tie-in comes in uh, education in and of itself is not particularly valuable to firms that are looking for um, labor um, because like is not what you're learning in the classroom is not particularly convertible uh, to the specific um, operations of a given um, occupation, of a given job, um, that actually um, most of what you're doing uh, in your job and whatever role you end up in uh, is gonna be learned on the job. Mm-hmm. And, and for firms, this represents a, a significant investment 
of resources and training you. Um, and so what education becomes is really a mode of signaling. This is the, the signaling theory of human capital, um, or of education at least. Um, so it's, you can think of it as a race, you know, you're competing against other people to have a better resume. Um, and so how many years of school you had, what program you were in, what school you went to, these are all signaling devices it's that meant to demonstrate a dedication, sure. a competency level exactly. in, in a broad sense. And, and so, um, under that theory, um, your, uh, level of education isn't so much a uh, necessarily transferable um, stock of human capital um, and what you what you would expect to see rather is that um, the market uh, remunerates you uh, more for the position that you eventually come to fill um, than um, just how you know blankly how many years of education you had absolutely mm -hmm. Um, because we would expect that um, even if one person has a master's degree and another person has only a bachelor's degree, if they're in the same position, we would expect them to be making roughly the same amount of money. Mm. Um, and actually, there's a, a, a decomposition of uh, the variable of years of education in, in this um, formula, essentially that you can do um, that will show, and I don't want to get into the mathematics of it. They're not that difficult, but it's outside of the, you know, yeah. view of this talk. Um, but it will actually show that, um, you know, if you have uh, the right amount, and this is a, this is a, a constructed term. Yeah, uh, just, just a note to the listeners, uh, Dave just used finger quotes right there. So I'm not the only one doing hand gestures. Oh on yeah, the sorry, sorry. If you have the uh, uh, if you have the the correct or proper amount, um, which is either an average or sometimes they use the listed, um, you know, like in a job listing, um, the listed educational requirements um, for a position, um, you uh, will get a certain percentage um, of uh, a certain return for each year of education um, that is far higher than um, the additional, the marginal percentage that you will get um, for every year above that, that you, mm. that you have. Um, so you can think about it like this. If you have, you know, four years of education um, for a job that requires four years of education, um, you will get something like uh, 12 to 14% um, additional income uh, for each of those years. Um, now, if you have six years of education, uh, and I'm, I'm talking about uh, post high school yeah. education, um, if you have six years of post high school education for that job, you'll get the 12 to 14% for the first four years, but for the extra two years, you'll only get something like two or 3% additional wage increment. So it starts to degrade. Exactly. And when what's actually really remarkable about um, this kind of decomposition is you can also look at under education, people who through hook or crook got into a position that, um, edu you know, educationally they aren't uh, technically, and I'm using finger quotes again, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, prepared for, um, they, the, 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 the decrement, the, uh, uh, the negative uh, marginal, whatever, loss to their average wage um, in that position is pretty much mirrors the additional uh, amount that people would get for having over. So they would only get, uh, if they were two years under, they would only get um, three, two or three percent less for each year under that they are 
uh, from that mm. average. Um, so I, I don't know. That that's well. Well, again, and and of course that slams us into that persistent problem in this topic. And and again, unfortunately, it's just a problem you, you can't do anything about. And that's uh, that that you know lining up your uh, desired education with what the job you're eventually going to do would require so that you get you maximize the usefulness of the education you get would require perfect information you'd have to already know what job you're getting and then go okay i'm getting this job it requires four years of education so i'm going to get those four years and then just stop and and it's really like i could get a little bit more money if i went for the master's degree but on the whole it's not really worth it you'd have to know what that job is. And unfortunately, yeah. nobody does. Um, well, and, and uh, even if you know what that job is, it may very well be that uh, the requirements for that job uh, change in, mm-hmm. the, uh, in the time that you are you know, investing in, in getting this education. Um, one of the um, sort of distorting effects of this um, you know, ramp up of, uh, of educational attainment in America um, this over-educational phenomenon, which you know we've seen um, really from the 1970s on, is that um, jobs just because just because it's a it, there are a larger availability of people um, with the full four-year degree, obviously, but also um, those post-grad degrees, masters, doctorate, even um, they you know you will see these these averages or or even the listed uh required um education starting to ramp up as well um and that's even more uh evidence that this is really more about signaling than um necessarily um you know the market just rewarding you absolutely for how much education you have well and again but like like i say that, that that is the the current reality is that yeah college has to be seen as a signaling device not necessarily a training uh, opportunity you know training you for for a job uh, but it, you know how much of that comes from the fact that you know as of right now a university public or private has no incentive on making sure the education they provide you is something that will get you employed afterwards because the university collects all its money up front once you know, once they hand you that piece of paper, the financial transaction between you and the school is done. Um, if you go off with sixty thousand dollars in debt and that piece of paper in your hand uh, in a degree program in medieval literature and can't find a job, school doesn't care, right? Because they already got their money. The lending agency cares. So again, one question on on adjusting incentives might, you know, would be, would it be better if instead of outside lending agencies, we made the schools the lending agency? So they now have this incentive of, we better be providing an education that is employment worthy, because if we don't, these students are going to leave. They they mm-hmm. owe the money to us. We want to collect on it because we need this money to run our school. But if they can't find a job, they're going to default on their loans. Sure. And we're going to be out that money. Um, again, that kind of right. idea of adjusting the incentive structure to potentially produce uh, 
in, in this case, a more employment-oriented education. I don't know if that's necessarily a better education, but it would, you know, that, that, that's a debate uh, well, in I don't, itself. I don't think the two have to be mutually exclusive. Yeah. You know, I think you can have a good, uh, broad-based, even liberal education that is also employment-oriented. And I think this is an interesting concept that I, I hadn't, uh, hadn't occurred to me. Um, it's, uh, one, it's interesting to me because um, most uh, colleges and universities are either A, um, you know, apparatuses of uh, the government, um, you know, the, the state government mm-hmm. here in, in the United States. And so you're talking about essentially, and, and there are ways that um, federal funds can be, um, you know, uh, put aside for um, states to use in their universities and already are. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, the government assuming more of the risk. Um, but also, you know, the other big class of universities out there and colleges are uh, private non-for-profit institutions. So now you're talking about instead of a for-profit um, private lending institution, which is uh, becoming more and more prevalent in the um, student debt market um, or college loan market, um, you're talking about a non-for-profit entity um, whose only interest is in recouping uh, funds and not necessarily making a, a profit wedge. Well, I mean, recouping, they still with an interest rate because basically to make up for uh, the opportunity cost of not having that money. They're, they've spent that money on on the student by right, right. admitting but, the loan. Sure. You know, you always have to you always have to account for um, inflation and the opportunity yeah. cost. But there are constraints um, to what they would be able to ask for and the ways in which they would market those loans. The other thing that I think is really interesting about that idea uh, just right off the bat is we talked about um, financial institutions doing social engineering, trying to trying to pick the winners, you know, yeah. in terms of like which which careers uh, are going to be or which which uh, degrees are going to lead uh, to um, better career tracks. Um, well, if anybody can do that, you would think it would have to be the professionals in academia uh, who they always have, you know, a uh, a a relationship with and in some cases have a revolving door relationship with um, the private sector mm-hmm. um, where you know the their graduates are going to be looking for jobs um, so th- in some uh, ways they have the richest uh, data set to be able to make that kind of targeting decision with and to um, you know uh, potentially charge different <laughs> different rates uh, you know set set different rates um, depending on which uh, career path you want to uh, move into. Uh, of course, this butts against the, um, the sort of tradition in America of going into a school and uh, with, with no firm idea of what uh, major path or career path you're going to, to follow, you know, spending those first year, that first year or two just doing pursuing a general course uh, of education and then specializing, t- uh, you know, taking your degree path mm-hmm. uh, as you become a junior and a senior. Um, this is not uncommon, though, in, in Europe. I mean, this is the way it's done. I know at least in France uh, where, you know, they provide education for free through the state. Um, but pretty much from high school on, you know, uh, more or less what uh, direction you're going to be taking with your education, with your career. 
Um, that's how they can do it. I, I, I imagine it's you know part of the, the the secret sauce that allows the whole system to work. No, oh, yeah, they can filter you down a track very early. Yeah, and in fact, um, we talked about this uh, right before we jumped on the podcast. Um, I remember a presenter at one of our seminars talking about the system in Norway and um, how Norway actually does. Uh, Norway is a small country, um, and you know that always makes these kind of things easier um, yeah. to uh, to think through from a uh, you know a governmental uh, level um, through the you know the public sector. But they actually do this kind of targeting uh, very specifically in their education system, where um, they take a look uh, and try and decide um, how many. Uh, how many graduates in each discipline they're going to need from each crop of students, depending on what what their own economic forecast is, and what they what they'll do is you know it's all publicly funded education. You don't pay to go to college in Norway. The state pays for you to go to college. Um, but what you have to do is you know you take a a qualification exam, and then um, you set um, a number of choices with regard to which. Um, academic institution you'd like to go to and which specific program at that institution you want to go into um, and depending on how well you do on your entrance exam and depending on how uh, what kind of quota for each year the government sets you know how many spots they open up in each of these programs based on their targeting um, you get your first second third you know I don't know how many choices they get um, but as with anything, you know, you're encouraged to, to have some safeties in case you don't do quite as well or you haven't anticipated like how, how many people they'll be taking. Uh, and that's how they target it, you know. Well, despite having that heavy social engineering component to it, there's also kind of a wonderful free market aspect in that if Norway is offering, say, five electrical engineer slots in right. a given year, then the assumption would be that the five people who get those slots are the best, smartest, most innovative electrical engineer candidates. Certainly above average. Yeah. yeah. And so instead of getting a whole crop of people in a subject who you're going to have the, the bell curve, you know, most of them are average. Some of them are half-assed electrical engineers. And other, you know, this small curve is is a brilliant one. You've already run them through that that gauntlet. That like, if you want the slot, you better be phenomenal, right? Already, and 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 so that, like I say, that's that interesting free market thing. So, I guess you know we, we've been kind of batting back and forth on this. I just want to go down uh, one more path here, which is, you know. The, the question of whether or not college is right for somebody essentially circles around uh, an idea. Basically, I think everyone agrees uh, that education is a good thing, whether you're on the left, whether you're on the right. No, no they're, they're, it's apolitical, that it's good to be educated, it's better to be more educated. Education is good. We, this country succeeds when our population is educated. So, you know, even really the argument of, hey, some people shouldn't go to college isn't that some people just shouldn't get an education. It's the argument of you shouldn't take on the debt load that comes with college if you're going to be working in a field that can't afford it. Because really, would any profession anywhere 
be worse at what they do by having a college education. Perfect example is my auto mechanic. Great with cars, went to a a technical school, uh, now fixes my car. Uh, Would he be worse at that if he had also been able to get a bachelor's degree in, say, mechanical engineering or electrical engineering or it's the 21st century, so uh, computer engineering? Mm-hmm. Like, no, he'd be better at it because he'd have the, the practical, okay, when you're when a transmission is, is broken, this is what you do. Right. Like, step-by-step knowledge, but also the theoretical knowledge of, you know, how the actual mechanisms work. The theory behind those mechanisms, oh, yeah. which could lead to him uh, not only having proficiency, but innovating. Yeah. Taking it that next step. So, if the real problem isn't some people just don't deserve, well, that, I'm being mean. Some people just shouldn't have an education. If that's not the problem, it's some people shouldn't take on the debt load that comes with an education. Then we go to where, you know, the Bernie bros are at, which is, well, education should just be free. Mm-hmm. So that would be a wonderful thing. If it was, everyone could pursue any education with without incurring the risk of getting an education in something that's not going to pay off for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, at any point in anyone's life, they could just hop into university and, and get themselves smarter. Uh, that's nice. But let's... I, I think when they discuss it, though, because usually the, the number I've seen get thrown around is that it would cost... Uh, 61.8 billion to pay for college for everybody. One, that's an inaccurate number. I <laughs> did a little bit of uh, bar napkin math here. And the 61.8 million is based on how much current. Um, billion? Billion, yeah. sorry. Oh, yeah. That would be really cheap. <laughs> yeah. I think we could do that. Uh, they'd knock that bill out like in one day. Oh, yeah. No, 61.8 billion is based on the current load of student debt existing out in the world. So that's what it's really saying that what 61.8 billion is, is if the government just wrote a check to pay off everyone's student loans. And I, the, one of the reasons I want to get on this on this podcast is it gets us into this other element of economics, which is second and third order effects. Uh, what, so really, if education suddenly became free, quoting the cost at 61.8 billion counts on an assumption that the only people going to college would be the people who are currently in college. Uh, What I did was I took the total number of live births from a four-year block, 1995, 96, 97, 98, which Mm -hmm. is the kids who are currently in college, 18 to 22-year-olds, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 22-year-olds right now. I took total number of live births, which again, obviously, you know, again, this is Back of the envelope math, uh, mul- uh, added them together, multiplied it by the average cost of a not of a public college education, which mm-hmm. for in-staters is nine thousand six hundred fifty dollars a year, and what it would really cost the federal government to cover the cost of education, assuming that again, if you could get a college degree for free, you would. Right. So everyone would. Right. Uh, it comes out to 150 billion, 670 million, 564,500 dollars a year out of the U.S. budget to pay for 
18 to 22 year old every 18 to 22 year old to pursue a college education now again that's you know that is not a precise number because that's not how it would go down and not everybody would would uh not everybody would be able to go to college because yeah. there just isn't the infrastructure for that. Well, and, and again, that lead, let, let's assume, though, that that's the case. Just because, like I say, second and third order effects are things hand-wave answers don't ever take into account. So what would happen if all of a sudden public university tuition was free? Well, demand for professors and faculty would skyrocket. Sure. Because, again, if you can get a degree for free, why wouldn't you? Yeah, and all of a sudden... Uh, uh, subjects like medieval literature wouldn't sound like that bad of an idea to go into because um, you know maybe there are uh, three times as many openings for professors in that area. Well, and plus, what it, what I would predict would happen is you'd also see a skyrocket of demand for private schools because the value of a pub, the more people who have a public or a public college education. The less yeah. valuable it becomes, you get because back into it's the signaling argument. It, it's not as unique, right? So if you really want to put yourself above head and shoulders above your peers, you got to go for that private education, mm-hmm. because it's a it's a way of distinguishing, right? Um, uh, and then in the job markets, like again, everyone having a college education means everyone will be doing better financially, you know, as far as income goes assumes that there is never a shift in the educational requirements that even though now everyone has a bachelor's degree employers just go yeah bachelor's degree you should get paid this much not instead saying well everyone has a bachelor's degree so if you want a good job you better have a master's degree right um, let me jump in here because uh, many, many thoughts oh, yes. have, have come up. <laughs> yeah, I, I dumped a lot right and bef- before I before I forget all of them. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, I'm surprised we haven't talked about this yet. And this is the first time this has come up. But this is a basic supply and demand issue. Mm-hmm. Um, as uh, price decreases, demand goes up. Um, that's practically law number one in economics. So, yeah, you would see a, a huge uptake in people um looking towards college as an option i don't think it would be everybody no no, I think no. I, i'm taking that as a, a yeah, an extreme that's approach. a that's a ceiling sure um but i think you're right it would expand uh, dramatically um the education market um you know institu- while diluting the value while diluting the value and i think that that's one of the things i was trying to get into uh with my you know brief discussion of overeducation mm. uh the 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 question and it's still it's still an open question uh to a certain extent you know this classic view uh the human capital theory that um you will be paid uh you'll be remunerated um according to you know your level of education regardless um of you know the overall market you know the the, the broader market um just because you are intrinsically more valuable. Yeah. Um, now, so what? And 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 this connects to another second order or third order uh, consequence of this. Um, the question becomes: um, Is it possible that because we have such a uh, uh, dramatically more educated workforce, do we therefore see uh, corresponding? Um, or proportional, I guess, uh, gains in uh, innovation and ultimately productivity in the economy. Um, that's a that's a possible way in which this could actually pay off. Well, yeah, I think because 
even if you see a shift in educational requirements, what you might be seeing simultaneously in this world where all of a sudden, let's say, well, uh, currently there's a 40% national dropout rate. So let's say 60% of um, Americans now have a college uh, degree. Obviously, that dropout rate wouldn't hold, but yeah. for It'll our probably purposes, go up, if anything. Yeah. Uh, but let's say 60% of the U.S. suddenly now, you know, because they can get one for free, they get a college degree. What so is the, do you, you know what the current set is? I think it's around uh, like 23%? Yeah, something like 24%. that. 24%? It's, it's higher than it's ever been, but it's still relatively low. Actually, I might have a slideshow that has that rate, but But go on with your point. Yeah, so you know, you're what you are likely to see with that big of a jump is again a shift in in employers for what they consider to be an education worth paying more for. Uh, But what you may also see, and and like I say, that may not be beneficial to those going to college. But what you may see, which is beneficial, is a shift in the type of jobs. Because if you put in the work to get a bachelor's degree, even mm-hmm. if it costs you nothing, you're still going to value yourself as a potential employee higher than you would without a bachelor's degree. So the, there'll be demand within the labor market for more skilled, more technical, more innovative jobs. Uh, again, you know, you, you don't want to put in the time and effort to get that degree and then sweep floors. Um, so, you know, the, uh, you know, we always talk about demand for labor. Uh, I don't think uh, we nearly talk enough about demand of labor. You know, again, what is the labor market looking for in the jobs available to employers? And of course, if there's a disconnect between what the labor market's looking for and what the uh, employer employers are looking for out of the labor market, you run into problems. But like I say it's just it's a rabbit hole that we can hit on another episode. Is those two conflicting things? Um, so I just looked it up, and um, I, I actually did have a graph on um, a PowerPoint presentation that I uh, created. This is actually something that I just pulled off Wikipedia anyway. Um, but it, um, you know, it's a graph showing percentage of the population 25 years uh, and over who have completed um, high school and also college, a separate graph line for college, 1940 to 2009. We've seen an increase uh, from 1940 um, with four-year uh, bachelor's degree um, from around 5% uh, completed, 25 years and older, to it looks like I can't tell exactly where this is landing, but it's probably somewhere between twenty three and twenty six percent. Well, that, in two thousand nine at twenty six percent, or twenty three to twenty six percent, we're already getting people, you know, saying that you know the market, the labor market's oversaturated with education. That a bachelor's degree is no longer worth what it used to be. Now you you got to go for that, you know, post grad degree if you if you want the real benefits of it. Imagine if that jumped to sixty percent. Yeah. Like the, the again, where, whereas I think you know the those in favor of a publicly funded uh, higher education, their hearts are in the right place. They're really not considering what happens to the job market after that. Well, and again, to to come back to my my point before, it 
the question really becomes uh, which view of uh, the labor market is the correct one. Um, now, the people that defend the human capital theory are going to say that if you're getting, if you're seeing lower returns, um, you know, for higher levels of education, um, as more and more people enter the the market and as the market becomes increasingly saturated with that level of education, um, that is only a temporary um, cause, or that's only a temporary effect rather, um, which is caused by um, firms needing time to essentially re-gear for having uh, a, a richer um, human capital stock, yeah. essentially, um, by which they mean um, you have this superior input that's coming into the market and firms now uh, can, you know, temporarily at least, they, they purchase it for a lower level, um, this labor. But if the human capital theory is correct that, um, a certain level of education has a certain intrinsic value, then it means that intrinsically those people are just more productive. And if they are more productive, that means that those firms then become uh, proportionally more productive for having them in them, which means they become more profitable, which means the economy at large becomes more profitable, more innovative. And um, I, I think that to a certain extent that is the case, but I also think that there is probably a uh, a number of factors that limit that that, that form a ceiling around that. Mm. So I don't think you will see. I don't think you would see a you know an exactly proportional rise in productivity. Um, and I think what the job of economists um, at this point, you know, considering this issue becomes, is can we chart um, where the sweet spot is? Mm. Um, how much how much education? is uh is going to be worth it um you know to like what where are you going to get your most bang for your buck how many people do we want at the, at a, a given level of education well and i guess also one last broad again secondary effect that I, I don't think gets considered enough is okay so you know with with a free or cheaper or whatever education you're going to get rise in people with bachelor's degree entering the workforce which is going to have secondary and tertiary effects in the market. But one, one of the effects that I don't think gets brought up enough is if, uh, again, the, the government were to be covering, the, and again, I say the government, if, if the cost of education went down, if the government paid for education, if, if any of these solutions that involve a spike in the number of people getting educated were to occur, in a way where they didn't incur that debt load. I think the current debt load, like the $61.8 billion was for uh, the basically how much is being currently spent in the, the block of students who are currently in college. If you take the debt load of everyone who's ever been in college, the, the number I keep kept seeing was uh, $1.2 trillion. Yeah, they're saying more like $1.3 now. But, yeah. so. but if that were to be paid off, and again, this fantasy world, no no yeah. one has that kind of money. But imagine instead, instead of that being paid off, the people who took out loans still need to pay them. Uh, but, you know, again, the Bernie bros get their way. College is free. You've got now a new generation who is not incurring $1.2 trillion in debt and well, greater than $1.2 trillion. What happens to our economy? when that 1.2 or, you know, again, it, it would be higher in theory, 
uh, trillion dollars is freed up for disposable use by the earner. Yeah. Because again, one of the problems with a a debt culture or a debt based economy is when you're paying that student, you know, you you complete your degree, you get a good job, uh, you get your first paycheck. A big chunk of that gets just eaten up by paying off your student loans. Now that's money. Like, like I say, that 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 is a fair trade. That's supposed to be worth it. You took out the the loan, you should pay it back. But that is money that you cannot use towards buying a car, yeah. buying an iPhone, buying a house. And if all of a sudden that if if all of a sudden that money wasn't getting sucked away to pay back debt, what would people and people would spend it? And you'd see this massive you know spike in in consumer spending. Which would have secondary, tertiary, whatever four is. <laughs> yeah, uh, no. Uh, throughout the economy. Yeah. Um, the so, and that can actually be a bad thing, depending on the rate of. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, um, because what you could end up getting is um, uh, rapid inflation, uh, overheating in the in financial markets, and uh, you know the the building up of uh, an eventual bust in the uh, the the boom bust. Uh, business cycle, which we've seen again and again and again. Uh, well, plus you're going to see a complete collapse in the the market for student lend, or for college lending, uh, which would have effects all its own. Right. Um, so there are there there is a lot of talk right uh, now, and it, there are already there are already programs, um, at least with regards to federal loans, um, uh, uh, where. What are they called? Pay as you earn. Mm-hmm. Um, there are pay as you earn programs um, that will cap uh, the uh, amount your your monthly premium. Essentially, you could think of it as or your your monthly uh, loan uh, payment at a certain percentage of your income. Um, and I think um, you know one of the one of the really remarkable statements among many remarkable statements that uh, President. Uh, then candidate Trump uh, made during his uh, campaign was that um, you know he was, he said he was going to institute essentially a pay as you earn program cap it at twelve point five percent of income um, which is very reasonable mm-hmm. um, and then also um, cap the re, you know the term of repayment at fifteen years um, which is even more generous than Obama had had floated at one point. Um, he said, uh, you know, pay as you go, uh, cap it at 10% of income, but, you know, extend that term to 20 years, um, which may, may seem like, okay, well, isn't that roughly even, you know, we've got an extra five years on the end with Obama, um, but, you know, Trump's a little bit more every month. Well, it's not because, you know, everybody uh, can relate to this. Um, the traditional pattern of earnings over a lifetime is increasing. And it may very well be that even if, uh, and especially if you're tying it to a percentage of income, then it, then all you're talking about is how much income is that person mm-hmm. making. Um, it could be that the amount of income that they made in the first 15 years, well, maybe they'll make half that over again in, in the, the last five years of that term. Um, so it could be, you know, potentially a lot of uh, additional money that you're uh, basically forgiving, that the government is forgiving um, under that scheme. 
Um, but it's, you know, it's strange. Uh, and the Trump uh, presidency campaign has been so erratic that um, I have no idea whether he actually intends to do any of that, um, whether he's even thinking about it now. But um, this is, uh, this is a, you know, a type of program that's been talked about. Unfortunately, it wouldn't really help people that have taken out private loans yeah. uh, like myself. Um, because you know the government can't unless they decide to um, you know repay individual lenders essentially as a, a form of a bank bailout. Well, to basically assume those loans. Exactly. Yeah, and that you know if if this if this uh, debt burden becomes critical enough, that may happen. Um, but it seems uh, I don't know. At least for now, uh, it seems as if the economy is managing fairly well because we we have seen um, you know stable growth um not really robust growth we've seen recovery we've seen a lot of recovery since um you know the 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 banking crisis um and economic forecasts are you know looking good the fed is seems to be getting more and more serious about um you know increasing rates which means that they're getting worried about uh you know potential inflation Um, i think we actually did see just in the first month or two of this year, the first like significant jump in inflation that we've, yeah. we've seen in years. Um, and, you know, I wish I had a number on that, but uh, hadn't prepped that. Um, in any case, uh, maybe what I meant to say is maybe uh, this level of debt that we're, we're under right now is sustainable. Um, but will it is it accelerating? Is mm. the rate of, of debt accrual accelerating um, because of this uh, sort of like endless race to the top with education? Um, is this creating a market, you know, which which doesn't actually serve us in any way? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. And how can the government um, uh, intervene to to prevent that? Uh, how, how can they change the incentive structure? Um, to avoid um, people essentially maxing out their futures and then having to live, you know, without, uh, you know, the traditional building up of of wealth over a lifetime, Um, uh, which, again, is the drag on the economy that we were talking about. Yep. And and again, you know, any, I I think, any any serious discussion of, of this topic gets us get would get anyone to exactly this point of there, there's a lot we don't know uh all the people you watch on tv who've got their their silver bullet solutions which are very if you listen to them are very hand wavy and always be suspicious of that honestly those solutions probably wouldn't work uh or they would but they would have a degree of unintended consequences that clearly the people proposing them are not thinking of and it's why it's important that we let economics be the complicated subject that it is and don't try to distill it down to talking points and it's you know why why the whole point of this show so uh unless you got anything else dave uh um i you know i can't think of anything right now uh i could I can mail in with some uh, well, <laughs> some follow-ups if I ever think of something. Well, and the nice thing about uh, the podcast format is if you ever want to come on again to sure. do a different subject or even just to pick up, you know, a few loose threads we, we didn't hit on on this subject, oh, anytime. One, one, one additional thing I, I uh, would add, um, I alluded to this earlier saying that maybe we should do a, uh, an episode on this. Um, 
all of this is, is complicated, and I think we were dancing around it a lot. All of this is complicated by um, the, I guess you could say, acceleration that we've seen in um, sort of like industry disruption. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, so, you know, people can't count on a certain career in the future. Uh, people over their lifetime are having to, you know, participate in three, four, five careers. Yeah. Um, because industries continue to, uh, are, are, it seems like the velocity at which they sort of experience upheaval is increasing. And I think undergirding that, and this is kind of, you know, one of my pet subjects as well, is um, the move to automation, mm-hmm. um, the intrusion of technology uh, into um, the, essentially as a displacing force in the labor market. And I think um, that makes this idea of targeting education even more fraught um, and uh, uh, you know but on the same at the same time rather um, more and more of the routine jobs um, that you can think of are being displaced by automation so in in one way it actually uh, makes an education more invaluable because um, the last jobs that are going to be left are the ones that require sort of like pure analysis and, and this sort of like irregular like modes of thinking yeah. um these professional services jobs the, the the stuff theoretically you're supposed to get as part of your college education so yeah it's a, it's a very thorny and complicated issue um for for so many reasons and it certainly can't be distilled to um like a cut and dry approach that is going to be marketable as as two sides of, of a political coin you know like the republican and the the, the democratic talking points um, they should, you know, you should really take with a, a huge grain of salt anything that you hear from them and just think about it, you know, yourself with your own uh, faculties of reasoning. Um, st- start trying to think about, you know, what those secondary effects are because that's, that's all economics is about is, you know, trying to um, see the whole system of exchanges that uh, occur, the, the whole ripple effect. Well, and uh, I guess just as a... Uh, final point to any uh, listeners out there uh, in you know researching this uh, any particular paper book uh, anything that you would point them towards uh, to learn more um, about education in particular I don't know if there's any textbook that I um, that I was drawing on um, but if you want to learn more about uh, the move to automation there are a couple of authors um, who are this is not it there are a couple of authors who are really dominant in this area um, they I think both work out of MIT it's uh, Eric Bryn Yolfson and uh, Andrew McAfee I would look up McAfee because you probably know how to spell that it's going to be a little easier to spell um, they wrote a book called The Second Machine Age which I'm going to work my way through uh, soon um, but I've read a couple of their uh, more technical economic papers, and um, it's really interesting stuff. And I think it's something that uh, should be informing the way that everybody thinks about the labor market, and in connection with that, um, you know, the problem that we have right now with education. Outstanding. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And uh, yeah, to uh, the listeners, listeners out there, I hope you enjoyed it, and I will uh, see you next time. Bye.